Um, if you're a guest with us, we want you to know that we just work our way through Scripture, and you happen to have joined us when we're in uh, 2 Corinthians, right near the end, chapter 12, from verse 20. And so we're continuing on with this uh, letter from the Apostle Paul that's, uh, that's been, um, yeah, honestly, it's been challenging to, to preach. There's some easy-to-preach passages in it, but a lot of it's been really tough because uh, Paul is... Uh, addressing the difficulties that he's faced in the church of Corinth and um, his heart's really grieved for the direction they've gone and the the way that they've turned away from him as they're the founder of the church and the apostle and and listen to these false teachers so it's it's a it's a it's been a tough letter to preach through we have one more sermon that will conclude it next week In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read 2 Corinthians from chapter 12 through chapter 13, the first half of verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Amen. This is God's word. So if you... You haven't been with us during that, through the journey through this book. You probably came this morning. I think, whoa, <laughs> did I choose the right church this morning? Because <laughs> this is a heavy passage. In the previous section, Paul had addressed all these false teachers' claims of Paul being weak, and Paul claimed he made this incredible claim. Actually, he's repeating what God told him that when we are weak, it's then that we are strong. Christ can be our strength. God's power, in fact, is perfected in weakness. Thinking we're strong enough on our own to be good in God's sight is just mere uh, arrogance, pride, ego. And that makes us useless in service to God. Paul was warning the Corinthians his next visit might have to demonstrate that strength Um, the power of God for discipline. And they weren't going to like that. And neither was he. 
Verse 20 again, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So this is the third letter that Paul's written. We don't have the second letter. And he's defending his role as the apostle to the Gentiles and as the founder of that church in Corinth. He'd, he has uh, contrasted the signs of an apostle and his sufferings with those of the false teachers to expose their deceptive tactics that were really for personal gain. And in our passage for today, he writes of an upcoming third visit to Corinth with this tone of warning, hoping that they'll change their behavior before he arrives. His fears and concerns for them also authenticate his authority as an apostle and, and someone with the pastor's, pastor's heart. Philip Brooks, over a century ago, described the heart of a true elder. He wrote, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration before untasted joy. But in the same cup, shall be mixed a sorrow that was beyond his power to feel before. Paul shares the heart of God for the Corinthians. And like a father not wanting to cause his children pain, he fears it may be necessary to discipline them. Paul addresses two fears about his upcoming visit. The first is that the fruit of the false teachers may still be evident within the congregation which is what he witnessed on his second visit. The list includes several fruits of the flesh that Paul wrote about in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Quarreling, probably over the teachings of the false teachers. Jealousy over who was the most spiritual. Anger toward those who disagreed to the point of hostility. Slander, gossip and conceit over one's title in the church or over their ecstatic experiences, all of which resulted in disorder. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul instructed them that worship services should be done decently and in order. That would be the product of preferring one another and exhorting the fruits of the Spirit, exhibiting, I'm sorry, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. Disorder is the result of the fruit of the flesh, as everyone wants to lead and have their own way. No one's preferring one another in love, and if that's the case, they will find him not as they wish. And Paul will need to do some serious reprimanding and spend a long time there helping them get back to walking in the Spirit. His time away has given them time to repent. This letter is a final warning that the time to repent and not face discipline of the Lord was drawing to a close. And Paul knows the Lord can exercise severe discipline through him. He had seen the Lord pronounce through him the judgment that blinded Eliamus, the sorcerer in, in Cyprus, 
There was also the excommunication of the immoral brother and probably many others that we don't have a record of in scripture. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul's second fear was that God was going to humble him before them, mourning over those whose sins he addressed in the first letter to the Corinthians. If the person's repentance was not sincere and genuine, and he was continuing to live in sexual immorality and sensuality, Paul would once again with tears have to banish him from the congregation, turning him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And that would mean, as before, handing him over, causing Paul grief and many tears so that he might be saved. You know, before, he was welcomed back into the congregation after he sinned. But if he had backslidden again this time, it may well mean his death. And Paul would be mourning over that kind of a situation. His broken heart and tears would humble him before the congregation. You know, in the early church, there was a serious fear of the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 died for lying to the Holy Spirit. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote about those who were ill and some had died because they weren't honoring the Lord's Supper. It was a case where the wealthy came and ate all the good things, and then the poor and those who were slaves came later and only had the scraps. And God was disciplining them because of that. We need the fear of the Lord. It's one of the things that scripture says keeps us from sin. We need to know that he's a good father and he disciplines those he loves for our good. You know, often we become ill and we don't consider that perhaps the Lord is dealing with us, disciplining us. That means we may need some more serious thing to happen to get our attention. We ignore connect the con con conviction and we go our way until God stops us in our tracks with a warning or an affliction or a broken relationship. And he brings us to our knees for our good. They wouldn't like the discipline that Paul would bring. They wouldn't like to see him brokenhearted. Paul hoped to find them as he wished and receptive to his instructions that were from the Holy Spirit walking in the spirit, rejecting pride and immorality and the ego of those false teachers. He wanted to find them in unity and loving and serving one another as before. This heart of a true pastor that deeply longed to see the spiritual maturity of those he disciplined while being ready to be the Lord's instrument for discipline, which would be delivered through tears, was another contrast with the false teachers. Paul's heart was devoted to the Lord and to the flock as well. They were the reason for both his overwhelming joy and his grieving heart. Verse one, 
This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The first time Paul was in Corinth when he founded the church, he stayed there and taught for a year and a half. The second was a short and very contentious visit, so much so that Paul left to give the Holy Spirit time to convict them of their ingratitude and their disrespect. And Paul warns them on the third visit, the Lord may use him to discipline them. Accusations were only to be accepted if two or three people were united in that accusation, and the one being accused had a right to face his accusers. That was the guideline given in the Old Testament scriptures. And that keeps an individual from making false claims against someone they personally don't like. It confirms the accuracy of what someone thought they witnessed. Most spiritual leaders do not like confrontation and contention. Requiring two or three witnesses reduces the chance of false accusations and it makes it easier to really assess properly the situation. Paul was not in the least fearful for himself, but how God might deal with them. Verse two and three in chapter 13, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that God is speaking in me. In the second visit, Paul had warned those who publicly behaved in the manner listed back in verse 20, those who were quarreling, slandering, gossiping out of conceit. He probably warned them that God would deal with them so the whole congregation would recognize their sin and not follow that behavior. In this verse, he says, he's giving them written notice that if they haven't repented and changed their ways, he will not spare them. By that, he certainly means that he will not hold back on the discipline that the Lord may prompt him to render. Paul had not only put an immoral person out of the church in Corinth, but we read in Timothy that he removed Humanius and Alexander from fellowship and turned them over to Satan as well for their blasphemy. Paul had experienced the Lord disciplining believers errant believers through him. And the thought ends in the first part of the verse three, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He knew his authority from the Lord. He knew his authority to teach and to discipline, which he apparently used only in the most severe cases of blatant sin or blasphemy. He'd seen the Lord's power through him to the fortune teller of Philippi, forcibly expelling that spirit of divination at his command. You know, and when the uh, seven sons of Sceva tried to cast that evil spirit out of that man, uh, demon-possessed man, and they end up being beaten up and running away naked, the spirits had told him, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but we don't know you. That shows you the anointing that Paul had upon him. Paul surely knew of the case of Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. 
He knew some of the Corinthians died for treating the Lord's Supper with contempt. So this was a serious warning that Paul was giving. It was not to be taken lightly. And in case you might think that was just back then, just for, you know, the apostolic age before the apostles passed on, let me relate my own experience. 20 years ago, there was a brother in the church, and he had some influence. The church had sold a piece of property that was donated and that before that I came to the church, and we were planning on updating the sanctuary. The sanctuary didn't have windows before. It was kind of dark. It had the little slits with yellow glass that you couldn't see through, and there was a choir loft here, and there were slats in front of the pulpit and at the back of the choir loft that kind of made your eyes buggy. And there was orange carpet and green pews. It was just very dated. And every time it rained, the water would seep through that soft, through the ceiling over there. And you can kind of tell some of it's been repainted because the soffit collapsed one day. So we really needed some updating. But this man was determined that he was going to stop it. And so he, the elder board, the admin board, we'd all met together and agreed, and we were going to bring it to the congregation. The night before the vote, um, he had a massive uh, heart failure. He had, and he had to go to the hospital, had triple bypass. Um, and long story short, the project was completed. Everything went smoothly. It was under budget. Uh, God sent us a, a wonderful man who had a great team that used to work for him in Florida that came and did all the work. Everything went smoothly and it was all done well. So afterwards, I, I went to see the man that had the bypass and said, did God show you anything? And he said, no, nothing. And honestly, I wept for the hardness of his heart that even going through all that, he couldn't see what God was doing and he couldn't acknowledge his own um, pride. I, I felt just a little bit of that, uh, what Paul was going through here and it taught me the fear of the Lord. That when God's at work, when his church is in unity and people oppose it, when people want to be the one who calls the shots and God hasn't called them to, it's a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous for us too, as we who are in Christ um, start going back to the world and compromising with the world. God is a God who loves us. And as a father disciplines his children, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us he disciplines his sons and daughters. Our aim is to glorify God with how we spend our resources that come from generous hearts. If the building is not maintained, guests will wonder how serious we are about seeking the Lord, if, if we care much that much about honoring him. If salaries are out of line with the average, it causes doubt about our integrity. If our finances aren't made public and, and presented to the congregation and audited every year, it leaves room for questioning. Everything must be above reproach and for the glory of God. 
In 13.3b, he says, He is not weak, that is, God is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. God dealt powerfully with those who didn't consider their poor brothers and sisters when they came to communion, eating the best before they arrived and leaving them scraps. And while taking lightly the sacrifice of Jesus' body on our behalf, they also took lightly the body of Christ that makes up the church. And some had even died in the judgment. That's God being powerful among them. They'd experienced that, that judgment. We think of God being powerful to heal and provide, and of course he is, but he's also powerful to discipline those who would ruin the testimony of the body of believers or those who would lead them astray by distorting the word of God. The church in Corinth needed to understand that God's judgments had already been taking place among them, which should have resulted in, in them having a greater reverence for the Lord. He acted powerfully among them. They'd seen miraculous signs of an apostle and God's judgments on some in the congregation, and yet they were swayed by the smooth talk of the false teachers. Paul is trying to open their eyes with this stern warning. He doesn't want to see God discipline them even more than he already has. We must know that the power of God will deal with us as well. And we too should have that healthy fear of the Lord. It's like a father who disciplines the child whom he loves. And thankfully, as far as I'm aware, there's no need of that presently in our congregation. Jesus is your source. He's your joy. He's your peace. You desire to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus said, that's all the law. That gives me great joy. But as we'll see in verse 5, we should always examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Backsliding is often gradual withdrawal from time and fellowship, from prayer and the word. Verse four, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The tone here is also one of warning. The false teachers were saying Paul's presence is weak, and that's because he was so gentle. Paul's response was that when I am weak, then I am strong. When he leans fully on the Lord, God's power is perfected in him, resting upon him like a tabernacle, which the Shekinah was manifest the presence of God. That's the language in the Greek. In this verse, Paul employs the ultimate example of weakness, demonstrating strength in Christ on the cross. Jesus' physical body was so abused, he couldn't physically resist even if he tried. But Jesus did not trust in physical strength. Physical strength did not raise him from the dead. You know, recently, physicists have been allowed to examine the Shroud of Turin and the 3D neg negative image on that shroud, concluding that the image was made by immense power. 
They said they could not recreate it because there was no way presently to produce that much power in that limited space. When Paul writes that Jesus was raised by the power of God, we should realize that is more power than we can fathom. Look at the contrast. Jesus' broken body on the cross, surrendered to death, followed by this explosion of power that raised him. Paul's writing that this same power was at work in his team. And note again the use of we. Paul usually refers to himself as we because he's talking about the whole team who from the world's perspective were weak, but in dealing with the church, they live with the resurrected power of Jesus, which is an immense, immeasurable power. What a picture and what a warning it was. I have no doubt if there were those who still wouldn't hear the message, they may, they may very well face the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira. They might drop dead as a warning to others. If I was one of those false teachers, witnessed the apostolic miracles and heard this warning, I would be shaking in my sandals and repenting. And I am so thankful that your elders here in this church are humble men who don't seek followers, but desire you to follow Jesus. We point to him. And may the Lord discipline us if we seek people to follow us rather than our Lord and Savior. None of us feel we're worthy of the office, but we all know he's called us by his grace. You know, I want to make something clear. We have seen five of our members go on to glory in the last six months. And I want to make sure you don't think I'm speaking of them, any of them. They live full lives. They were growing in their faith. It had nothing to do with discipline. It's all the fact that God has numbered our days. And he knows when it's time, the best time, to take us home. It almost always seems too early to us, but that's because we cannot see what God sees. It was their time to graduate into his presence, free from earthly pain and sorrow. That power that raised Jesus will one day raise the dust that was their bodies and transform it into an eternal dwelling like his. I'm going to conclude the message with the same verse with which I'm going to begin next week's message. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. After such stern warnings, Paul tells them and us what we need to do. The Greek is in the imperative active, meaning right now we must scrutinize ourselves. Are you in the faith? I recently just happened to watch a special on the fall of a pastor of a megachurch. Now, the, the film was done from a secular perspective, but the facts were discernible. The pastor was like a CEO. He wasn't a part of a team of elders. He spent money extravagantly. And while most of what he said was biblical, he added that damnable prosperity doctrine that Jesus wants to make all of you rich. And while he preached purity, 
he gave in to his own lusts. One of the witnesses justified her own sin by pointing to his sin. People attended for years without having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so many attendees were really not in the faith. Are you in the faith? What does that mean? It's not just coming to church, singing the songs, tithing, or doing it, being baptized for that matter. It asks if you have trust Jesus to forgive you of your sins and made him Lord of your life. You know, we all like to hear that first part. Forgive us of our sins. What a wonderful thing. But not so much the part about him being Lord over our lives. Do you look for him to him for direction? Do you run to him for forgiveness when you fail? Are you asking him for a hunger for his word and spending time in it? Most of all, is Jesus first in your life? Is he the reason you live? Do you seek to glorify him in all you do? Are you longing for his return? This was Paul's challenge to the Corinthians. Was the bad fruit he witnessed a temporary stumble on their spiritual journey? Or were they not truly in the faith? They needed to know if Christ was in them or not. It's one or the other. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Or do you just enjoy the company of the people and the feeling you get when you attend? Fellowship's very important. And God's children will desire it. But, if, but fellowship without Christ is meaningless. And if you find you're not in the faith, know that God is a righteous judge. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. Repent and receive him as the Lord of your life and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Live daily to know him better. Be assured that Christ is in you and that he will perfect the work he has started in you. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.